sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, here with your friend and mine, Aaron Porter. Aaron, back in the saddle, back in Tennessee. Uh, and Aaron, it, thank you so much for inviting me to come last Saturday and kind of share a memorial meal and some time with your kids, talking about your dad. Uh, how you doing there on the grieving journey? Yeah. Is that a little weird? I don't know. I just want someone other than my kids to be there. Yeah. It wasn't weird at all. It was wonderful. Uh, I got to see all those photos of your dad. Beautiful, beautiful collection of, you know, dozens, hundreds of photographs of your dad throughout his life. And then to watch some video from the memorial uh, time that you had out there in Southern California. I I got the sense it was really good for your kids to be able to kind of have that time. Yeah, that was that was pretty weird yeah. to leave them here for a month while I was there. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a long time from yeah. the, the time that we were in Colorado till I got home was one day shy of a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know they would have liked to have been here, but air flight yeah. tickets as they are, uh, yeah. that was a lot. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the grieving... I've lost you were tight a- with your dad. How does your life change? How does the world change when your dad's gone? And he yeah. went, he went quickly. I mean, it was, uh, you didn't yeah. have a lot of notice that he was going to be going. No. Um, so I've, I've lost a lot of people in my life. Mm-hmm. And one thing that has been consistent is when they have gone I, I go into, uh, well, any, any crisis situation, I go into practical mode, what needs to be done. Yeah. I'm, I'm that person. Mm-hmm. And then over the months, uh, I will, well, over the years, mm-hmm. I will see something and think, oh, I gotta, I gotta tell this friend of mine about this. I need to yeah. call them. And then I think, oh, they're not there. Yeah. And so I let myself off the hook a bit. I think everybody grieves differently. I yeah. knew that I was there um, with and for my mom. And that, you know, I've already had a few things that have come up where it's just like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm still wrapping my mind around this. Especially yeah. because I've lived away for almost five years. Yeah. And yeah. so... You know, it was it was phone calls, and so it yeah. still feels like there could be a phone call. We just haven't chatted for a while. Yeah, and so I I think that takes time, and I try to give myself the space. Um, I've often felt like I don't grieve in normal ways, or like other mm-hmm. people do. I look at the Wailing Wall. I'm always jealous of Jewish grieving with a whole yeah. lot of physicality. Yeah. I don't naturally do that. That would take a lot of faking for me to do that. But I'm yeah, jealous yeah. of a culture that creates that space. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I am just uh, taking it one 
one step at a time through this and expecting that there'll be times that just blindside me and like, mm-hmm. wow, okay. All right. Don't get to do that with him. Don't get to talk to him about that. Yeah. And also knowing that he went quickly compared to, you know, he was having some cognitive issues that could have stretched out for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this was better for uh, him and harder for us as is often the case. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's all I know about that. All right. Well, hey, before we get to our guest, I wonder whether we should answer another one of those questions from Albuquerque. Well, Sean, give us the intro. It's questions from Albuquerque. Questions from Albuquerque here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. All right. Here's our question from Albuquerque today. Our friend wrote to us and asked, what about these particular sexual struggles makes it good to have separate men's and women's groups? What about these particular sexual struggles makes it good to have separate men's and women's groups? Now, early on in uh, sexual addiction 12-step groups, there were mixed groups. Well, by necessity, uh, for the uh, there were not enough women in the early groups uh, in the early days of sex addiction recovery. They were few and far between, uh, and uh, you know, people like Marnie Ferre would have found themselves sitting in a room. She would have found herself sitting in a room by herself because there just wasn't another woman who was at that point uh, facing the reality of her addiction situation. So, but it so- did make it it made it difficult in those early years. When I got into recovery, there were still co-ed groups. Uh, and for those of us, not and let's just say, for guys with the same sex attraction, us, you know, <laughs> having, uh, you know, gender-separated groups doesn't solve the problem. They can still get triggered in a meeting, right? Right. Uh, but I sure experienced it early on, you know, when a, you know, a lovely young lady was doing a first step and she got a little bit graphic about her acting out. That was really rough on me and tough on her. I felt bad for her to have to do that in a room of guys. Um, and so as at least 12 step recovery in Nashville, at least has evolved and grown, um, the, uh, uh, the women have, and now got some meetings of their own. Whether there are still uh, co-ed meetings, I don't know. So, okay, there's a couple things. One, there can be an idea that the uh, the concept of needing to split split up men and women in these mm-hmm. groups is some kind of puritanical byproduct of evangelical Christianity. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. So then we have to look at some basic realities that you're talking about that, man, I hate that these things even need to be explained because they seem obvious. Yeah. But I think this question is asking for us to state the obvious. Right. That for a man who is struggling with any kind of sexual addiction, whether it's porn, fantasy, uh, love addiction, or, you know, any other one, to have women in the group becomes a a fantasy trigger and possibly for the woman. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a woman, but yeah. And so separating them is important because why state the obvious. 
you know, when I was at my sickest early on in recovery, um, I really thought that I think there was a part of me that thought women had all the answers. Women had somehow the, the answer to whatever I was missing in my life was feminine. And so I was always tracking if there was a woman in the vicinity, I was always tracking where she was. And, uh, it's, and it was, and the problem was not them. The problem was me. Um, I needed to be able to get into a, a space. I needed to be in a safe space where I could talk about my issues without, uh, that distraction and, uh, without going off into flights of, of fantasy or trying to perform Somehow, if there was a woman in the room, she would become the most important person in the room to me. So let's talk a little bit about why discovering same-sex intimacy that is non-sexual is important yeah. for each of us, whether a man or a woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Why? Why is that important? Well, because it, it, there's no intimacy without emotional connection. Uh, we call having sex being intimate when, I mean, I, I had plenty of sexual experiences that were not intimate at all. Right. And in fact, uh, even though my wife and I were having marital relations, uh, she felt alone in the relationship. I didn't know how to connect with her emotionally. And she always had the sense unspoken though it was that I was using her and sex was a, performance. It was a medication. It was transactional. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it was never, in my mind, just the two of us. I was always in bed with a cast of thousands. Uh, And uh, it takes time to detox from that. And it takes, you know, uh, but sitting in a room with other men without the distraction of a woman, and being able to get to, to be gut honest and then be able to get to tears, be able to become vulnerable, to get to <laughs> moments of true joy and get in touch with fear and be able to say it, uh, to be in to, uh, to start to make emotional connections with people in the room. And, wow. and to have a man speak back to us. Yeah. yeah. Things that are healing and intimate. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then to be able to take that home. I learned intimacy in uh, in 12-step meetings and SAMHSA meetings. I'm still learning intimacy. But it, I, that's the reason why so many wives uh, uh, push their husbands out the door to go to SAMHSA meetings, because they like what comes back. We kind of practice <laughs> emotional <laughs> connection and intimacy there in the room. And then we come back and we can... We can rerun those conversations. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Questions from Albuquerque. We got to press on though, because we've got a conversation coming up that uh, you're going to want to be a part of. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. This episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast is sponsored by LifeWorks Counseling. Our good friends, Roan and Eva Hunter and their son, Roe, are not just members of the Samson Society, Sarah Society. They are also trauma-informed 
certified sex addiction therapists with a tremendous amount of experience. Well, they and their team of counselors and recovery coaches are based in Madison, Mississippi, but thanks to the internet, they're able to work with people who live almost anywhere. So to find out more about what LifeWorks Counseling can do for you as an individual or as a couple or as a family, or to register for one of their upcoming intensives, go to lifeworks.ms, lifeworks.ms. Welcome back to the Pride Month Podcast. Say, friends, a few weeks ago, I had the good fortune, uh, while I was in Florida, speaking down there at the sanctuary, to meet up with some guys I'd been hearing about. Uh, they uh, they have something called the Recovery Church Network. And we are fortunate to have with us today, really, uh, one of the key men. We call him the founder of the Recovery Church Network. He was there, met him for lunch that day. We, we connected afterward up here in Tennessee. Phil Dvorak is with us. Hey, but Phil. He'd, he'd prefer to just be called another guy working it out with the other guys who are working it out, doing, <laughs> uh, doing some work. Absolutely. Somewhere. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'm glad to be here. Ah, uh, the Recovery Church Network. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to think where would be a good place to start the story. Uh, if we rewind a little bit, Phil, years back, you were working in the recovery field, weren't you, in the treatment field? That's correct, yeah. I, I've worked at a variety of different treatment centers, private practice, that kind of stuff. But Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what? You, you've been a pastor, a therapist, a clinical director, a church planter, and then worked at an alcohol treatment center in some capacity of all of that. That's a weird resume. <laughs> Back us the hell up <laughs> to make sense of that list of titles. Uh, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm a little crazy. No, I don't. You know, it's been kicking and screaming. A lot of it just trying to find my own identity and, and all of that. But also just the journey God had me on, on my own journey of recovery, my own journey of faith. Uh, mm -hmm. But he's always called me. I've always felt called towards kind of the outcast, towards the person sitting in the corner of the room. You know, and mm -hmm. so that was always he had me on this path between the church world and the recovery world. And those two things in different formats. There was a season in my life I said, I'm never working in the treatment field. Don't you dare never going back. And then then I was called back and called back in a secular treatment center. They hired me in as a pastor, um, not as the clinical director. They wanted me as a pastor, even though I am, you know, a licensed therapist. Uh, and we started a church service in the middle of that treatment center. Uh all right, but you're saying always. So I'm picturing you as an elementary school, a student in knee pants, not a common phrase anymore. Like, how did you go from your childhood? Did you grow up in Florida? No, I my family moved all the time. We never lived in the same house more than like two years growing up. And so uh, my father was an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, just different things. And we always ended up moving for a variety of reasons. Um, and so my family are, um, we're not particularly faithful or Christian or religious in any way. Um, they saw church as something good people did, not so much us. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, but I, from the time, some of my earliest memories are neighbors pouring into my life, taking me to church with them, getting invited to a church camp, those kind of things, and just seeds being planted in my life from a really pretty early age in the midst of just normal, chaotic, broken life that we all have. So. Mm-hmm. So, so when, uh, what do you mean by young age that you became aware of the faith community and who Jesus was? Um, I was probably eight years old, and the na- a, a neighbor family by the name of the Umlands uh, were pouring into me, and they invited me to church. And my family actually started coming to church a little bit at that time, and invited me to church camp. It was a little Congregationalist church in Southern California. Um, and first congregationalist, first congregationalist of Redlands, California, actually. And we went to a church camp. And um, I remember one of the one of the camp counselors. I had no idea what they were offering me. Really, they could have been offering me a hamburger. Um, but they kind of did a prayer salvation kind of thing. Who would like to accept Jesus? Well, that sounded like a good idea. Um, and so I raised my hand. I was the only one in the room who raised their hand. Um, and he took me into another room. And said, you know, I really don't know how to do this. I've never done this before, but I think this is what we do. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. How old are you? That's eight years old at that time, probably. No, no. How old are you now? Oh, born in 79. So what's that make me? 43, 40. Yeah. Okay. So this was still the time when people were not suspicious yep. of someone taking you alone to the back <laughs> no, room true. to indoctrinate you. Yeah. No, no funny business. He was just a. A good, I think probably a high schooler. He seemed like an, you know, an old man to me at that age, but he's probably a high schooler yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. or, or a college student. And we said a, a, a sinner's prayer kind of deal. And I got home and I remember my mm-hmm. brother who had gone to camp before go ask me, well, you, did you say amen at the end? Because if you didn't say amen at the end, it didn't count. Um, <laughs> okay, that's the first I've heard that that one. So, So going from there... At eight years old, into doing uh, becoming a therapist and those types of things, and that's cycling back yeah. into church work. Yeah, can you can you bridge that gap for me? Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a this is a fascinating, <laughs> bizarre like bunch of words <laughs> that describe you. Well, I ended up, you know, my family moved a lot, and so we ended up in Daytona Beach. Um, during the MTV spring break era, the, the wet t-shirt contest era. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, mm-hmm. um, and my father had been fairly successful before that and now was kind of rebuilding his life. And we had concessions on the beach, uh, during that season. So I'm working in the middle of that come, you know, middle uh-huh. school and high school, right, right on the beach, right where the stage is, right where everything's going on and all the chaos and, um, uh, and I, so I was being pulled in two worlds. I, I, I was being pulled right, obviously right in front of me, the, this party scene, this drunken scene, this just, you know, nightclubs and all, all that. But there was a, a little Southern Baptist church that w- was there and they invited everyone to go to Night of Joy uh, and they would pay oh. for us to go to Night of Joy. Uh, and so this right. cute girl. That was Christian night at Disney, Disney yep, World. It was a Christian concert at Disney World. And this attractive girl invited me and said the church was going to pay. And so Mm -hmm. so I went with them um, and they pursued after me Um, in the middle of my brokenness, in the middle of um, just being a goofy adolescent trying to figure things out. They really pursued after me in a a good way, in a healthy way. It wasn't the 
are you going to heaven or hell um, type pursuing after me? It was a genuine relationship pursuing after me. Um, but yet I discovered at the same time liquid courage. I, I, I discovered at the same time um, mm -hmm. and was at the nightclubs. Um, Razzles was the, the place in Daytona. I would go often um, and discovered yeah. that this um, little bottle gave me uh, courage. It helped me feel like I could dance and feel like I could speak in front of people and do these things that I see didn't seem to have the strength to do on my own. And I started going to school um, uh, with some Kahlua and cream and my, my coffee and um, occasionally mm -hmm. my water, my water bottle, some vodka and those kind of things just to get me through mm -hmm. homeroom. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, was on that journey, but it was always being pulled in the two worlds of between the, the church and the rooms of recovery and decided I was going to go to college at a Christian university, hoping I was going to get discipled there. And I was afraid. Wait, wait, don't, don't skip ahead. Don't skip uh -oh. ahead. That was, that was so good. <laughs> like what? age were you finding this liquid courage with Kahlua and cream, which I remember my mom and grandma having. So good for you <laughs> being a young man who was willing to have an old woman's drink uh, or vodka. Like what age? My, my first time drinking um, was probably around fifth grade. And, uh, and from the very beginning, I drank to get drunk i never i never understood drinking like tipsy or most people i, I that never made sense to me i, I there should have been mm -hmm. hints when i think it was fifth or sixth grade um my science fair project my parents got a phone call from the school um asking if they were aware of the project i was doing because the project was the effects of different alcohols on plants and so what vodka would do to one <laughs> there should have been a hint that that um, <laughs> but i don't want to like uh, exaggerate there or make it seem I, it, I was experimenting. I was exploring. It wasn't uh, at that age, wasn't something like every day. It wasn't something that it was, um, you know, I'm going to hang out with friends and they're having something to drink and I'm having something to drink to fit in. Or, um, they had a tea night at the nightclub and, it, you know, I could get in and we would yeah. drink before, before we went in. It, it was kind of that experience or, Oh, there were some pretty girls on the beach and, they'd pay attention to me and, you know, okay, could I get my older brother to get them something to drink? So they'd hang out with me. It was that kind of experience through most of high school until I was getting towards the end of high school, 17, um, you know, 17 years old or so, 18 years old or so, where it started to become an obvious problem, or at least where I had this fear inside of me that if I would keep drinking, that I was going to die. And so, I really made the conscious decision. I wanted to go off to a Christian school in the hopes okay, what, that I wouldn't, I'd find people who would help me. What mm -hmm. made you think that thought? This is now a problem and it could lead to death. Like that's a, that's a huge statement. Yeah. Um, part of it was because my brother had a 10 year, he started drinking and using drugs from as far as I, I know from the time I was born basically. So he was 10 years older than me. And so within a few years, my earliest memories, my brother, Kevin, was known by the family as the, the, the family drunk, the family addict. We didn't say those words. We wouldn't admit that was what was going on. Um, but he was kind of the scapegoat in the family. And I didn't want to become him. And so there was this mm -hmm. fear inside of me of becoming as bad as Kevin, as 
And so I had seen that he at times would be looked at as like the, the town drunk in Daytona. Um, you know, my father thought he was helping him at one point and helped him get a bar, you know, <laughs> because it was going to be like cheers, <laughs> you know, um, at least, at least he can have a job working in the bar kind of deal. Um, and Kevin would have, you know, we'd find his car in the middle of the road on a one a, uh, with the door open and the mm. car running when we were going into work in the morning. And so for me, I, I didn't want to become that. And I saw yeah. that he had no relationship with his, his, uh, well, at that time, teenage daughter, um, and just, just had nothing. It had robbed him of everything. And so there was that fear instilled in me. Mm, mm, mm. I get that. So then you yeah. went off to the Christian school. Yeah, I went off to the Christian school, and when I and that, and that fixed, fixed it, that fixed everything. That fixed yeah. everything. I, I showed out there, and everyone helped me. No, I showed up there, and instead of finding a bunch of people who were mature in their faith, I found a bunch of PKs and MKs and these preacher kids and missionaries yeah. kids who um, were just now finally able to have a little venture that I had been having for the last three, four years um, or more. And so I was off to the races again. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was a, um, a young youth pastor who at that time, again, seemed much older, but he was younger. He was probably in his early 30s, um, who was going through the graduate program at the same school I was in. And somehow I got placed in some of his classes. Now, I didn't know who Paul was. Like, I was a young baby Christian, and somehow I'm in Pauline Christianity, and I'm in some advanced level classes, and I... I, I knew nothing, and this youth pastor was in there, um, and he wanted he invited me to volunteer at his his church, and we had uh, community service hours we had to do, and so I started serving in that youth ministry, but at the same time falling falling deeper into drinking. Mm, mm, mm. All right, keep going. I'm fascinated. <laughs> I got no question. Nate, do you? <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm at that college, a good school. Um, this, this youth ministry was, was, was fun. It was great. We're going on mission trips. But at the same time, um, there were, I was just going and enjoying drinking and, and having college adventure. Mm -hmm. But for others, they went home. You know, the, if we went out drinking, it was a dry school. So we couldn't drink on the, we, if we were caught drinking on the campus, we <laughs> risked being expelled. We discovered ways yeah. at that time, the internet had just popped on, and we discovered we could order bottles of vodka online before they <laughs> we committed a million. At that time? <laughs> there was like DoorDash? <laughs> we we ordered it. Someone shipped it to the, the, uh, the school's mailroom, and we hid it in the ceiling in the dorm room. Um, and... Um, <laughs> But for the most, but for the most part, we just went out and left the campus if we were going to drink because it was safer that way than mm -hmm. risking getting expelled from the school and losing all that money that you're paying for a private, private, you know, college. Mm -hmm. And so we would go out drinking, go out to the clubs, do that kind of stuff. But I don't know, probably around one in the morning or so, most people were tipsy and they were heading home. Um, and I didn't understand that I, to me, I, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't understand tipsy. And so I just kept drinking. Um, and one night in particular, uh, my codependency is, was so deep. Uh, I had to leave the next morning. I, I had to lead a Bible study at that, that church for the middle schoolers and I'm out drinking and it hits me at one in the morning or whatever time it was 
that I had, I remembered I had to do that the next morning. And I had a choice. If I stopped drinking, then I was going to pass out. I was going to, I would pass out and I know I would probably not make the Bible study in the morning. So I did what, mm-hmm. what the most rational thing that I could think of is I kept drinking. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> so the next morning, um, you know, I've been drinking all night cause, so I wouldn't fall asleep. I somehow made it to that church. Uh, I'm not sure who drove. If I drove, I, I really don't remember that. Um, I had a pattern of, of blacking out when I was drinking and not knowing exactly what I had done or, or what had been done. Um, and I walk up to the stairs. The youth room was on the second floor. And then I walk upstairs. There was a group of middle school kids waiting there for me um, to lead them in their Bible study. And I walk in and I sit down. They already have the chairs in a circle. And the next thing I remember is uh, I am vomiting. And there, and I look up and there's a young girl holding a garbage can between my legs. And I make eye contact with her. And she just has tears running down her face um, because she uh, she knew that smell. Uh, she she mm-hmm. knew what was going on. I actually had been trying to help her because her mother was in active alcoholism. And in that moment, that young girl, she knew what I didn't know. Um, she understood that I had a problem that I really didn't fully understand yet that I had. And so I quit in that moment. I, I didn't quit drinking. I, I quit the ministry. I said, I, I, can't, I can't do this. But mm-hmm. by God's grace, that youth pastor was a very good man. He since passed away during the first batch of COVID, but uh, a very good man and a dear friend. And he said, you know, Philip, whatever it is you're going through, you've got to confess it and get back to doing what God's called you to do. And he, he, he would not. I tried to just quit and walk away. He chased me down to my house. You know, it was pre-cell phones, and he, he's banging on my door. <laughs> he was not going to give up on me. He made me come back into that office, face him, and walked alongside me for, for a number of years after that. So that mm. comes back to this recovery church value. We work and believe in the 12 steps because they embody many of the Bible's core teachings and will lead a person closer to God. Absolutely. Bridge the gap between that story and that statement. Absolutely. So I found the 12 steps through being in the church, not even knowing, like for me, when I looked at addicts and alcoholics, it was those people. It was my brother. It was those people. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't see AA at that time in my life as something for a person like me. I thought it was for those Mm -hmm. people. And it took me a journey even beyond what I just shared what, can can you describe what those people like you meant to you at that moment? For, for me, it meant uh, like my brother, homeless, living under a bridge, mm-hmm. having life right, just right. completely ripped out from under them. Yeah, the, that's him. Yeah. Who was he, who? Who were you in your mind? In my mind, at that age, is uh, I've got this. Um, this isn't really that bad, you know. I you know, fine. I missed a class, but I still. Um, I passed, you know, go back to high school. I passed out during the SATs, but I still got a good enough SAT score or, you know, Mm -hmm. or I'm still on honor roll and, or, you know, the who's who or whatever those lists were, you know, national honor society and those things, I still was doing good enough. I wasn't the valedictorian, but I wasn't dropping out of school. And so, so, so I believe I got away with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, not even that. It was I didn't think there was anything to get away with. Like I, I really felt like I didn't have that problem. And I think a lot of people. I was such denial that it was the same. That that my problem at all was similar to my brothers or 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 the the homeless people we'd find on the beach in Daytona at the time. And I saw myself I, I, I an arrogant superiority over them. I saw myself as better than uh, those people, um, even though mm. I hated myself, even though I con- I was thinking of of suicide during those seasons, even though I I felt like a worthless failure, I still um, felt better at the same time. If if that makes any sense, Nate, I yeah. want to know what you're thinking right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm struck by the time when you were active in ministry and active in addiction, because I've been in that place. And then quitting the ministry in despair uh, and not wanting to think of myself as an addict. Yeah. Um, how How did you make your way into the rooms? So years passed after that experience with that young girl. Yeah. And at that point, we did some good work, some work that really is like 12 step work without calling that with that youth pastor, things that we did Mm -hmm. some deep, good spiritual work. And I still had not fully accepted I was an alcoholic, though. I just Mm -hmm. I didn't we we stopped drinking for a season of time there. Um, yeah. And then I got a call as uh, some years passed. I, I, I worked in uh, an adolescent treatment center, believe it or not, because um, mm. so I had to have an internship for school. I worked in this adolescent treatment center um, and and did some good work there, but just wasn't drinking. Then took a job as a youth pastor at a local church that had a high, more high church and had a view of alcohol as just kind of a part of the culture of the church. You know, they would do theology mm-hmm, on tap mm-hmm. and they would go talk about faith and they'd have drinks. Right. Well, I was invited to give my first sermon um, on a Sunday night because we used to have Sunday night services and uh, they weren't going to give me Sunday morning yet, but I was going to give my first sermon on Sunday night and I s- started just getting insane anxiety, horrible right. anxiety. Yeah. Um, just, just really freaking out, you know, just about it. And the pastor saw that and said, you know what, let's go, let's go take the edge off and invited me down to thirsty turtle. Uh And because Mm -hmm. I had not accepted that I couldn't drink like a gentleman, um, I hadn't Mm -hmm. accepted that this was a problem, that it was never going to be wise for me to drink again. He said, what do you have? He ordered a beer. I ordered a rum and Coke. And then another rum and coke, and then another rum and coke, and then I proceeded to break out in horrible hives um, all over my body, severe hives, um, and proceeded to preach my first sermon that night, intoxicated. And a mm-hmm. nurse walked up because she saw the the severe hives on me, and she gave me a Benadryl, and so uh, which took away the hives and gave me a solution for a little while where I could I could continue to drink and, and take Benadryl. Uh, but that night when I finished that service, I walked out. Now, a number of years had passed from the little girl with the garbage can. And I walk out from that service and there was a, a druggy buggy showing up. The AA meeting was showing up and I resented them. 
because they would mm-hmm. disrupt the youth room. I had to redo the chairs every week and they used the youth room <laughs> and they would leave some cigarettes sometimes in the ashtray outside and they showed up and sitting at the table going to the AA meeting was that little girl who had been holding the garbage can. Oh, wow. And wow, you would think that I would get what God was trying to tell me. Um, very obviously, <laughs> he was trying to tell me that uh, that it was never going to be wise for me to drink again. It was never going to be a, mm-hmm. a good, honorable thing for me to drink again. But I went off to the races um, for a season there. Um, I tried to go to doctors and I got biopsies because of the hives and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, it took, it, it took, uh, me looking in my wife's eyes at one point and seeing fear in her, um, mm-hmm. of like, oh my goodness, what mistake did I just make? And, and seeing mm-hmm. that before I realized I, oh, I, I have a problem. I'm not, uh, I am one of those people. Um, and then that process then led me into the rooms from there. Mm. Wow. Wow. Phil, you remind me of Haydn. Yeah. The, 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 the composer. composer? Yeah. Yeah. He, he did the surprise symphony. I love the surprise symphony, (laughs) but he, he had been in a children's choir and was very good at it with the, the high, you know, (laughs) stuff. And he thought, I want to do this forever. I want to get myself castrated. His dad came <laughs> home and was like, excuse me, my son's not getting castrated. Sorry, this is this is some music history classes from <laughs> 35 years ago. But he was not a Mozart. He was not a Beethoven. He was not a child prodigy. He got better and better and better. And it was not until he was much older that he wrote the Surprise Symphony, mm. which is one of my favorite symphonies. Mm. And man, I get worn out by Christian testimonies that are radical changes at a certain point that's like, well, God, give me that. Mm. And sometimes God's like, um, no, we're going to go on a journey, me yeah. and you. Mm. And I might not remove the thorn. Absolutely. Because in your weakness, you're going to discover me, Amen. not me fixing it and making it disappear. Amen. And you are... A fucking hide. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think <laughs> I don't know about getting castrated, but <laughs> well, no, uh, castration never okay, happened. Good. Dad intervened. Yeah. It was, yeah. Listen, I want our listeners to hear the story of Recovery Church yeah. and how that got started. Well, so you, you heard part of my story, and so obviously some of the seeds mm-hmm. there, but then. Um, Man, if I, I'll go back, maybe I don't know a dozen. I'm a horrible historian, so maybe a dozen years ago, maybe a few years more than that, I was working at a treatment center, um, and treatment centers had hired me. I, I be, got my license as a therapist, and so they were hiring me either as a clinical director or kind of a consultant to help set up faith based components within. It, it mm-hmm. was marketable; they could make money saying we have a Christian track. And so, one of those treatment centers hired me to come on. And the clinical director, very shortly after I was hired on, um, was uh, arrested and put in prison for mortgage fraud. This was, and, uh, and so mm-hmm. now I'm in charge of this treatment center. Uh, but hey, at least it wasn't addiction related. It wasn't addiction related. There's plenty of those. <laughs> that's, that's forty. Good. But there's plenty of those people, especially where I'm at, who all got <laughs> uh, arrested for craziness with 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 the treatment world and all that. But that wasn't this story, at least. But so. 
all of a sudden I'm in the, this new treatment center and I'm leading and trying to figure this out. And I'm sitting in my office and we had, I could look through my door and sitting along the, the wall there was what I would refer to as the wall of shame. And it shouldn't have been a wall of shame, but it, it was where the frequent flyers would come and they'd wait for their intake. And so they would sit there mm-hmm. and you could just see the shame on them. And the, the seam of, mm-hmm. I want it to be true, but I just don't believe it. I've gone through here 17 times already. and I'm 19 years old. You know, nothing's going to change. And, but they're, they don't know what else to do. Well, this young girl will call Rachel. I could see her sitting there waiting for her intake. This treatment center would do a full strip search, a UA. Um, and then you'd get all your questions on your intake and everything. And she's sitting there waiting for that. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, and, and, you know, not audibly, but I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, tell her about me, tell her about Jesus. And I got up out of my desk kind of reluctantly because I am very (laughs) reluctant to listen. It takes me getting hit on the head. But I get up out of my desk, and as I step out of my desk and I step into the lobby, Right as I crossed the threshold, another gentleman who's in the lobby, he collapses and he had a heart attack. And so we call 911 and we get him taken care of. But when you call 911 in a treatment center, that's a little chaotic where the clinical director just went to prison and everything's all, uh, it, it goes nuts. And so we take care of all that stuff, get that all calmed down. And then I'm driving home that night and I realize I never told Rachel uh, about Jesus. And, and I'm like, God, I, I'm sorry. I'll do it first thing tomorrow. I take my day timer out and I turn to the next day and transfer over as I'm driving home and right at the top of the first appointment, tell Rachel about Jesus. And I get home and we have five kids. So I don't remember which kid it was, but there was a kid there. I'm sure, um, help my wife with, get the kids to bed, whatever it was, meal, go to bed. And then somewhere in the middle of the night, I always say three in the morning. Cause it was, it's always seems to be three in the morning. Um, the phone rings and it's the the landline just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. And so I answer it and it's one of the behavioral health techs. And he, he says, Philip, I don't know what to do. We just found Rachel and she's dead. And in that moment, I made a promise to God that any, any program I was a part of, any ministry I was a part of was going to do two things. It was going to give people multiple opportunities to hear the gospel and multiple opportunities to find a path of recovery. And those seeds became the, the kind of the heartbeat of anything I became a part of. And so then a few years later, I got called to another treatment center to establish a Christmas Christian program there. And they hired me on there, not as a clinical director, not as a therapist. They hired me on as a pastor. Well, if I'm going to be a pastor, we need a church. And so in the middle of the clinical week, we put a church service uh, and right in the middle, we had no idea what we were going to do. You know, does this thing have to be crazy Pentecostal or high uh, bunch of rituals to make it feel like a church in the middle of a treatment center? We didn't know what we were doing, but all of a sudden the patients started showing up and they started calling it drunk church. Um, and they started <laughs> saying, Hey, you may have been drunk at church before, um, but you've never been to drunk church. And they, they created a little slogan like that. And we just started trying to connect the gospel and recovery principles together to the heart of the addict and alcoholic. And we had this church service that was going and we would take the steps or we would take a recovery principle and we would, we'd integrate the, the, the biblical stories and, and the heart of the gospel with that. And we were seeing people come to faith. 
And we were seeing people get baptized, you know, vans loads every week were getting baptized. And then the, one of the owners of the treatment center who was not a believer, uh, who was a person of peace, dear friend, good man, probably one of the most Christian non-Christians I've ever met. Wait, wait, but define a person of peace, if you will. Yeah, so um, the Bible talks about when uh, Jesus sent the disciples out to go find a, a man of peace, and that doesn't—I don't believe that necessarily was a believer. There probably weren't believers where they were being sent, but a person— who would receive them, a person who would welcome them into their home, a person who would provide for them in, in the ministry of what they were doing. And so um, Bill, Bill Russell, who was the CEO at that treatment center, um, to me was a person of peace. He, he protected us and our little Christian program, even though he didn't agree with us. He saw what God was doing, even though he didn't understand it. And said, "Hey, this is a good thing, even though I might not believe it. But what the results of this are are good." Um, and so he he advocated for us, and he pulled me in his office one day, and he goes, "Phil, I know you're going to say it's Jesus, um, but you know, is it strange that when I bless you, I'm blessed?" I'm like, "No, keep blessing me. I'll take it." He was driving a Bentley. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Um, but he goes, "You know, whatever's out there." Um, you're gonna again. You're gonna say it's Jesus, but whatever's out there, I think is telling telling us that that you need to plant a church for addicts and alcoholics. And and, and I, I, I I said I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> you know, this is crazy. We had enough on our plate. Um, but there was a Baptist pastor down the road who was also harassing me um, to help him with his program in his church. And what I did was say, you know what? I got that Baptist pastor to get together with the the man of peace at the treatment center who came from a more um, Unitarian kind of un unity kind of background. And I put this kind mm -hmm. of fundamental Baptist together with him. And I'm thinking this is going to kind of be fun to watch. And, and maybe the <laughs> Baptist pastor is going to share Jesus with my boss. Maybe that. No, at the end they had worked out a deal and I was planting the first uh, recovery church out in the community and the treatment center was going to pay the Baptist church for me. The secular treatment center was going to pay the Baptist church for me to plant this church and allow any of our staff members to join in as long as they got their job done to on the clock to help me start the first recovery church. And so I had to say yes. I mean, how do you say no to that when uh, a secular mm -hmm. organization is going to do that? And so we opened up this first recovery church downtown Lake Worth, Florida. Um, in an old coffee shop, and then we it grew really quick, and we moved into an old bar called the Bamboo Room. Floors were still sticky with beer from 100 years of, of mm -hmm. serving alcohol or more. And we just started giving people Jesus and giving them a path of recovery, and it was packed. Two, three hundred people showing up. Um, it was just this amazing, beautiful mess, and we were happy with that for a number of years. I left that treatment center, but this little recovery church remained. I worked for another ministry that was planting churches across the world, little micro churches across the world, um, did all sorts of things, but God would not release me from, from this little thing called recovery church. And then people would leave South Florida and they would go back home because down here, people might not know in South Florida, there are more treatment centers than there are McDonald's. And so mm -hmm. they would come down here for treatment. They would end up finding out about recovery church. And then they go back to New Jersey and they'd be calling us up. Hey, we want recovery church here. We miss recovery church. Can you start a recovery church up here? No, I'm not going to do it. I have enough on my plate. 
And until finally there was a group that was driving an hour and a half from Vero Beach, Florida, down to Lake Worth Beach, Florida, and coming to Recovery Church every week. And that was just insane. And George walked up to me after one of the services and said, Philip, can, can you help us get, you know, can you come and plan a recovery church up in Vero Beach? And I said, no, I, I'm not going to do it, but I'll, I'll help you. And the second those words shifted that I wasn't going to do it, but I'd help them, something shifted inside. And we started slowly saying yes, but we were still okay with it not being that way. And then... I had a job transfer where I was going to have to move out of state and I was going to have to leave behind recovery church. And so, but God would not release me and I'm arguing with God. I'm like, God, can you, can you release me from the stupid hobby? I want to be, I want to be a real leader in the faith, not this kind of <laughs> sideshow or this crackerjack pastor, however you want to look at it. Um, <laughs> cracker Jack pastor. And, and God just said, share the vision. Share the vision. I'm like, God, are you nuts? You really want churches for addicts and alcoholics by addicts and alcoholics? God, this is going to be a mess. Do you know? Do you know these people? Um, I'm one of these people. God, Whoa! <laughs> do you know these people? I just want to sit in that for a minute. Hey, Jesus, do you know these people? Okay, go on with your story. Um, and he just just share the story. Get done with that prayer, and the phone rings, and it's a pastor acquaintance of mine who said who was back from a mission trip, had a bug, said, I'm going to be there on Sunday, but I can't, I, I have to leave the room. Can you just come and share the vision that God's given you for Recovery Church? Dang it, God. So just moved into our house. We have like a six-week-old baby, um, and I'm telling my wife that, uh, you know, I'm going to go up and go on the road and go preach at this church. Um, and so... I go up there, I preach, I share the vision, and I mean, I'm talking about shoving needles in your eyeballs, kind of, you know, opiate crisis message at this church. First service is all blue-haired and gray-haired. You know, average age is 120 in the first service. I mean, it was just, <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm arguing with God as I'm sharing, you know, do I need to change this message? Is this resonating with anybody? And we get done with the message, and the pastor had asked for me to have a time of prayer afterwards. He goes, I don't know how many people are really impacted by, by, by this here. I know there's some, but let's have an opportunity for prayer. Well, we start praying and there's a line of people going out the door and it's all the grandparents who are raising the grandkids. And one by one, they're coming up and we finally, we run out of time. And there's a lady standing in the back, um, just hanging there, but she didn't have enough time to come up. The next service starts. We get done with that service. And now same thing, prayer, but this is more, um, a younger crowd is more people who are willing to admit that they were in addiction or in recovery and that kind of connection. Finally, we get done with that. And the lady who's been hanging on the back walks up to me and she goes, how do I help you do what God's called you to do? And I say, what do you, what do you mean? And then I, I, I not like me at all. I say, are you talking about money? Um, and she goes, yes. Um, and, and I go, well, you can talk to the pastor here. I'm a guest here. If you write him a check, we'll work together. We'll figure this out. And she, she goes, I don't know anything about that pastor. I don't know anything about the Christian Missionary Alliance you keep talking about. I don't know anything about this great commission fund or any of these weeds that I was getting lost in. She goes, I was driving on my way to church this morning. And on my way to church, I felt the Holy Spirit say I needed to come in here. And now I know why. And will you... 
And so she talks to that pastor and the pastor's like, can you just take the check? And so I took the check and I hop in my car and I'd love to say it was like an hour later. I looked at the check, but it, I don't know if I made it out of the parking lot. Um, and it was for $10,000. And so I have this check for $10,000. I'm like, God, what am I going to do with a check for $10,000? It's, it's, it's too little to change the world, but not enough, um, to, to, to ignore. ignore. Yeah. It's, it's 10,000. <laughs> yeah. I can't just go buy someone dinner with it and, and be done with it or, or go help one person. It's, it's, an, it's, and so I actually felt led to call my boss, um, of who was saying we had to move to Raleigh. And I call him and I say, David, I need to talk to you. And my boss was that Baptist pastor now, um, who, ha who had start, helped start the first recovery church with me. I go, David, I need to tell you, God just won't release me from recovery church. And he goes, Philip, you're not coming to Raleigh, are you? And I'm like, well, he goes, no, you're not hearing me. You're not coming to Raleigh. He's like, here's what we're going to do. You got that $10,000. I'm going to match that $10,000. Um, and then um, uh, there's a Baptist church up in Virginia. They're going to take care of your family's health insurance uh, for at least the next six months. He's all make that happen. They'll take care of your family's health insurance for the next six months. So you have 20,000 there. If you can raise another 10,000 uh, over the next few months, you know, we'll figure that out. He's all the Timothy initiative. That was the organization I worked for. We'll match 30,000. So you can have 60,000 to start this ministry because the call on, on you is too, is too, uh, we can't deny it. And we need to support you in doing this. And I, did I just get fired or did I quit my job? I wasn't sure. I was driving the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to call my wife and say, Hey, hon, we're not moving to Raleigh. Um, and we're going to start recovery churches. And so we started saying yes to these little churches for people in recovery, by people in recovery. And we went from those two little locations, the three to four to, to over a dozen to 18 going into the pandemic. And then we weren't like, sure, like anyone, what do we do? And so I think for a week or so, some of the locations shut down. And then all of a sudden, Recovery Church Delray Beach said, we want to open, like we want to start a new recovery church. Well, we're on lockdown. Like, what are you guys talking about? Well, there are too many people are dying uh, from their addiction. We, we need to open up another recovery church. And so we said yes to them opening up and they opened up in the middle of the pandemic and sparked life inside of us as a, as a, as a movement. And we just started saying yes. And so now we're at about 50, uh, any moment we're approaching 50 of these little churches for people in recovery by people in recovery. And we're still learning and we're still don't really know what we're doing. But we're saying yes, and we're just trying to be that bridge between the church and the rooms and the rooms and the church. There's a gap there at times. There's this, I can't, I can't be completely honest and transparent in the church about what's going on and how I really feel. But at the same time, some, sometimes in the rooms, we don't feel we can be really transparent and honest about our faith in Jesus as well. And so we create this bridge mm -hmm. between both, and it's been quite beautiful. Bill, I have so many questions that I wanted to ask you, and we don't have time for it now. So, A, we should probably just do this again sometime. But I know our listeners would love to know, how do they find out if there is one of these recovery churches near them? And if not, how to find out more about them? Absolutely. If they go to recovery.church, so the church is the .com, so just recovery.church. Uh, we have a map on there with all the different locations, all the contact information for 
or, and when they meet and all that good stuff. And then they can reach out to us right through there. My email is simply phil at recovery.church. They can drop me an email. I'll be happy to respond and help anyone. There's one of these near Nashville, right? There is. There's one off of Franklin Pike oh, yeah. over right next to Judson Baptist Church and the yeah. Hank Williams Jr.'s childhood home and Tammy Wynette's house at one point in time is where we have so, the service. So w- will you take me and Nate next time you I, come to this I area? I would love to. It would be great. And, uh, look, before we, before we let Philip go, let's. I, I just want to paint for our listeners a little bit of picture, uh, help them understand a little bit of what a recovery church service looks like. First of all, most of these are not on Sunday morning or Sunday night, right? Absolutely. Most are other evenings throughout the week. I think across the network, we only have one that meets on Sunday morning. Okay. Okay. And it isn't your typical talking head service where we've got an expert necessarily who always runs, runs the meeting and does all the talking. No. So right? lots of them have different formats, kind of like what you would show up at an AA meeting. Um, some might be an open share. Some might be a speaker meeting. So lots of different formats that we have. We have embraced a lot of the traditions of the fellowships, mm-hmm. one being a spirit of rotation. And so we yeah. always want who's ahead of you, who's behind you. And so you'll always see at most locations a, a, a level of rotation that takes place. Right, right, right. And and you have something analogous to the chip system. Yes. So at most recovery churches, they give out uh, different color crosses that – denote different lengths of recovery. And so a plain wooden cross, just like a white chip, surrender, I'm starting this journey, uh, yeah, all the yeah. way up to different colors. I think most of them do purple for multiple years. So, Oh, wow, wow, wow. And then a big night is anniversary night, celebration night. Oh, Yeah, so anniversary night. In some of the locations, anniversary night, um, they do a testimony. They might do a meal. Uh, many of them do baptisms mm-hmm. that night. And so mm-hmm. it's typically anniversary night, you know, someone's sharing their experience, strength, and their hope. And it's just a big celebration at most locations. Okay. And wow. some of the locations okay. are very small, um, mm-hmm. very much like a church in the round, like you would find, you know, in an AA meeting, a dozen people or so. Yeah, yeah. And some, like our Del Rey location, are three, 400 people. So. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, again, thank you so much oh, for uh, joining us. Well, Nate, uh, we, we should just we should just wrap this up right now. Okay. So let's let's let listeners know how to get in touch with us, and then let Philip be a part of our closing. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if he knows the drill. I don't. He's going to have to say his name at the end. You're, you're uh, gonna you're uh, gonna have to say your name. Okay. That's the drill. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, we'd love to hear from listeners. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode, and we'll pass anything along to Philip, of course. You can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the show. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And I'm Phil. Oh, you are awesome at that. Come on. (laughs) You are so good Um, at your name. (laughs) We're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>